0: Very good, very good. What a delight it is to celebrate God's goodness together today here as the assembled body of Christ. Amen? Amen. And that in all things, Christ would be glorified and his gospel would be announced and his kingdom would advance in our midst. And with that mind, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. Last time I was visiting here at Cornerstone, I think two Sundays, maybe three Sundays ago, we, uh, we had a bit of a look at the final verses of chapter 1 of First Peter, and today we're just going to continue that on, although I, I fully appreciate that there's been a few different sermons and a few different uh, preaching and teaching moments here at Cornerstone. In the interim, nonetheless, I think that there's a there's a conveying and a carrying on thought here that's well worth our time and attention. So the theme, the subject that we'll be studying together today will be the Word of God. So what I'm going to do as I turn in my Bible to read with you is I'm going to read the final verses of chapter 1. And then I'm going to read the opening verses of chapter 2, and then we're going to see how God would speak to us. I am uh, visiting here today, many will know, from Ascension Church in Brisbane. And it really is my delight to, uh, to be here and serve this wonderful family of faith in the Word of God. If I haven't met you, my name's Craig, and uh, by God's grace, let's dive into God's Word together. So pick up our reading here at verse 22 of chapter 1. Uh, But you'll remember, our focus will be, of course, the opening verses of chapter 2. So here we are, verse 23, 1 Peter 1. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Now, chapter 2, verse 1, continuing. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Verse 3, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is is good. May God bless this reading of his own precious, infallible, and inspired word to us today. Now the reason why I, the reason why I start off that way, although I, I, I've said several times now we're going to dial in our focus at these opening verses of chapter 2, but start our reading at the back end of chapter 1 is because most of you will be well aware that chapter and verse breakages or indices in your Bible are entirely artificial. That doesn't mean they're wrong. In fact, they're often helpful. Like today, when I stood up, I said, turn with me in your Bible too. And I gave you a book and then a chapter and then a verse. And in pretty short order, you were able to open up your Bible or electronic device like I'm using and find yourself at the right place. But what often happens as we're reading the Bible is we can kind of get lulled into this Presumption that chapter and verse numbers uh, are actually inspired, or they're embedded in the original text, and so those breakages of thought, or argument, or concept, sometimes they they interrupt our ability to follow the flow of an argument. So for Peter, he did not write those; they were not there when he inspired, when he was, I should say, inspired to write this epistle. In fact, most historians, I I, I side with this mainstream opinion believe that Peter probably didn't write this, hold on, don't stone me, but he, he spoke this letter, right, just to be clear, it is, it is Peter's, just to be clear, but he probably was using a scribe, which was, which was more often than not the common practice in the first century. In fact, some of you will be surprised to know that historians will tell us that there was no such thing as silent reading until several centuries after Jesus, you think, how on earth is that possible? If you'd, if you'd walked past someone who was reading a, a parchment, a scroll, right? They would have been reading it audibly because that was the universal practice of the day. And so what's happening here, almost certainly for Peter, is he feels that, that the Spirit has come upon him and he wants to give this wonderful epistle, so he grabs a scribe. Now, that changes something of the, of the dynamacy with which we read and appreciate this letter. If we read it like Peter has sat down, he's carefully crafted an outline, he started with, with great deliberacy and great care to, to write each letter, we lose something of the pace of this epistle. And sometimes the, the chapter and verses can al- almost inhibit that, right? Like, like we fail to think about what Paul is saying in chapter 2, verse 1, 2, and 3 in light of what he is already said but there's no breakage for Peter he is standing there I, I, I don't know if he's standing there I, I imagine Peter uh being quite quite demonstrative right to to be standing there and he's getting fired up and excited and and zealous and and he's spitting out these words under the inspiration of the spirit of course and the scribe is madly just trying to keep up with Peter as he writes this wonderful content now why is all of that so important that's like bible 101 Why is that important? Well, it's always important to know your Bible better, but for the purposes of our study today, it's because identifying what Peter speaks of in verse 2 of chapter 2 can become quite difficult if you've not understood it with a broader context of the final verses of chapter 1. You'll see this in reference to this phrase Peter says in verse 2 of chapter 2, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Now, I don't know about you. You've been in church probably many times. You've been in good churches. You've been in not quite so good churches sometimes, maybe, maybe not. And you've heard sermons maybe on this. And there's been a lot of people creatively conjure up ideas as to what this spiritual milk is. Like, Like, what is it? What is the spiritual milk? And it might be their brand of Christianity, or it might be the latest fad or novelty that's raging in evangelicalism, or it's, it's some author's new book, a new concept, a new idea, or new practice, sometimes for good, bad, sometimes ugly, sometimes all of it combined together in a fantastic mix of absurdity, right? We've been an evangelical long enough to kind of see it all. But I would argue that there's really no mystery at all. The spiritual milk, quite clearly, if you let Peter speak for himself, is the word. Word. This is the word, Peter says, that was preached to you. This is the gospel. You've been been born again, not of perishable seed. What perishable seed produces is always innately perishable. What imperishable seed produces is always innately eternal. And this is the word. So, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. That's going to take up the majority of our discussion here today. How is the word pure spiritual milk and how does it help us to grow up into salvation? Now just a, just a final remark on, on sometimes what people do is they, they deify the chapters and the verse indices and numbers in their Bible. I've heard sermons, uh, let, me, let me restate that. I've heard entire sermon series preached upon verse numbers. And chapter numbers. Now, sometimes the thoughts that are conveyed are noble. They're good. They're God-honoring. But what we can say for certain is they are not God. Because these come centuries, more than a millennia after the, the, the codification of God's revelation through His inspired prophets and apostles. And so we won't, of course, get carried away with that here this afternoon. But we will focus in upon this idea that we are called to put away all malice deceit hypocrisy envy and all slander now i think as i meditate upon those upon those wicked practices and attitudes i think that there's more than one religious terminology in there and i would like to kind of translate that a little bit for us today peter under the inspiration of the spirit is commanding christians everywhere to put away ill will that's what's meant by malice ill will or fakeness that's what's meant by deceit and hypocrisy fakeness to be artificial to not to not be the authentic true version of yourself jealousy he talks about envy gossip rumor mongering these are ideas of envy and all slander how tantalizing it sometimes to 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 come across a, a little tidbit of of wonderful little bit of rumor that that inside knowledge and how much does that tantalizing take on a life of its own when we have the privilege to convey it to, to others? Have you not heard about so-and-so, about brother, sister, so-and-so, about pastor, so-and-so? Peter is saying, put away these evil practices. And the, the mechanism or the instrument that we're encouraged in the text to utilize, to put away these unchristian evil practices is to long for the pure spiritual milk of the word. Not just too long, but you saw more than that in verse 2, didn't you? You saw that verse 2 says like newborn infants long. Sometimes we suffer from an an overindulgence in piety when we read passages of scripture and the apostolic author is trying to be graphic and we sanitize it. So, Any parents here? Just quick, raise the hand. Let me see where you are at. All right, nine of you. Great. I think there's a few more parents here uh, this afternoon. And do you remember that experience when that baby first came home from the hospital? Some of you may remember it pretty vividly. Some of you, you, you've blocked it out, right? Hours of therapy, you've been able to, you've been able to kind of uh, mute that memory. You remember what it's like, that precious little, that tiny little, that, that fragile, vulnerable, beautiful little. In our instance, it was a little boy, little Knox, we named him, and he was so cute. And ador- he had these eyelashes that almost reached the end of his nose, just this beautiful little kid, this kind of shock of black hair. And it was all going great. I, I, I will admit I was terrified when I had to kind of harness the baby into the car and drive it home. I don't know about other fathers if you had this moment of trepidation where my wife kind of shuffled out of the hospital and got in the car and I was strapping little baby in. And you kind of look around and think, is this okay? are people really leaving this kid in my care? Has someone thought this through? Like is this seriously happening? And you get that precious little baby home and it's a beautiful moment. And then the baby gets hungry. And what happens? I, I cannot describe to you the shock to my system. That tiny, little, vulnerable, fragile, little, eyelashed little boy, when he wanted his mother's milk, he screamed the house down. I thought he was dying. I was about to call Triple O and get an emergency service there to help us with this. My wife just, she calmed me down. Relax. Hungry, that's all this is. I said, that cannot possibly be all that this is. It's just hunger. And Peter wants you to, sorry if this is a traumatic flashback, Peter wants you to think about that image. And you will know that that child once nourished upon mother's milk is wonderfully placid for a frustratingly short amount of time. And then babies get hungry again. There is an intense, all-consuming craving to be satisfied in those newborn infants. You think Peter didn't know what he was talking about? You think Peter wasn't married and didn't have children? You think the Holy Spirit wasn't trying to get you to get a graphic image in your mind? Not overly religiously sanitize that image, but remember it for all its shock and awe when a newborn infant demands their milk. Doesn't that stand in contrast sometimes with our own use and appreciation of the Word? Peter commands us, that the imperative of Scripture is like a newborn infant, you long for it. You long for it. You, you desire it. Many commentators and preachers on this verse will, will make much of the fact that this verb, long for, is overwhelmingly used in the Bible for illicit lusts. Like not always, it's not only for that, but But the majority of times this verb appears, it's for people just just ravishingly lusting for something without any desire to be appeased by anything but the object of their desire. And that's the image Peter wants to portray. Peter tells us about the word with reflection to these phrases or these ideas of pure spiritual milk. Firstly, milk. It, it, milk is a curious analog for the Word. But I believe what Peter is attempting to convey, and of course with great success, given he's under the inspiration of the Spirit, is that this milk is nourishing. It's fueling, it's healing, it's consoling, it's comforting. Everything that the, the good doctors and the good medical professionals will tell you about a mother's milk for a brand new baby should be, should be in some way presumed about the nourishment of the Word. It builds the immune system. It, 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 relieves, it relieves pain and, and, and suffering and, and it helps baby in every possible way. There's a high caloric sustenance and all satisfying meal. That's what pure spiritual milk is for the Christian with regards to the word. And that's what the newborn craves in his mother's milk. I will tell you one thing and I, I, I do this at the risk of you thinking I am an abject ignoramus. I'm comfortable with that. I learned everything about raising children. We've got four healthy children now. oldest is 13, youngest is 8. They've survived thus far for no other reason than my wife understood about raising kids. Me, useless. I'll tell you one area that my uselessness was made manifest in the early years of us having children. And don't worry dads, you don't have to admit this, but I was shocked that newborn babies don't drink water. Apparently it's pretty bad for them. Some of you're like, really? No, for like he can kill, he can kill them. It's very bad for I didn't realize. I remember going to my wife after a week of having our first brand new little precious boy. I said to my wife, are we gonna give him something to drink? She was like, Yeah, uh, the milk. It's a drink. I'm like, no, no, I, I get that, but isn't he also thirsty? Doesn't he want something to actually drink? And my wife looked at me again like she has many times. Who did I marry? What's wrong with this man? And we recognize that babies don't drink water because the milk is entirely satisfying. Newborn's milk is both meal and drink. A newborn's milk is both snack and supper. And I think, again, there's an analogy in that for the way that you appropriate the value of word in your life. There are times when you grab your Bible and you're just fixated on on a particular, maybe it's a word study or maybe it's it's an historic narrative where you're just reading a gospel and you kind of lose time, you lose track of where you are, you lose a sense of the importance of the next appointment and you're just buried in the word and it's a wonderful season but there are also times where you're in a rush of meetings or the chaos of the day is getting upon you, you just need a verse. And that's what can happen with newborns feeding upon milk. It is drink and meal. It is snack and supper. And those of you that had little children or been around little children ever seen the newborns, once they've had a full feed laying on their back, face flush red, some of you remember that picture, looking as though they're as full as any king who feasted on the best meal of their kingdom. There's an unmistakable look of Satisfaction. Dare I say it, when newborns are full of their mother's milk, it's almost a glow that they exhibit. It's a glorious sight. I'll never forget it in all of my days. Also, that, and as a father, never forgetting the smell of a newborn baby. There's just something bizarrely comforting about it, but I've revealed too much. Oh, for Christians to have that look on their face after seasons of feasting in the word. Peter also tells us more about this word milk, His, this play on words, this, this embellishment of a, of a metaphor. Peter says it's pure milk. He calls it the pure milk. It is rich in goodness. It's completely lacking in impurity and contaminants. You can read a lot of good books, and boy, do I recommend you do that. But you can never read any book. For which you know there isn't a single sentence, word, or syllable that has somehow been contrived to lead you in error like the Bible. I'll tell you again, slightly anecdotal and maybe again revealing too much. But before I entered vocational ministry two decades ago now, I used to work in a Christian bookstore. I was the worst Christian bookstore employee. You've you've encountered some bad ones, I've no doubt. I was the worst. Because my imperative constantly was just to get people to buy Bibles. And that wasn't really my job profile. My job profile was to sell them on the latest and the greatest. And I had the misfortune, right, of working in a Christian bookstore when, you know, certain books just kind of lit up with fame and fortune, like purpose-driven, I don't know what was the fad at the time. And people would come into the bookstore routinely and say, they'd see me, I'm staff member, name badge, hey, how are you doing today? I need a book on, Right raising teenagers marriage or, you know surviving who knows right i need a book on comfort during times of distress or bad doctors diagnosis people came in looking for succor comfort they they wanted some help and i would just walk them to the bible aisle i found the book it's here <laughs> And I wasn't trying to be glib. I wasn't trying to be silly or facetious. I remember one customer was particularly agitated. I think she'd come in looking for something for her son. He was becoming a teenager. I want something to help my son to grow up to love the Lord. And I said, oh, I've got just the book. And we went to the Bible aisle. She said, no, I, I have a Bible. It's not what I'm looking for. And I said, do you not realize? I said this, and I didn't last long in the job, you can imagine. I said to her, do you not realize that every other book in this entire store Everything good that can be gained from every other book in this store has gained it by deriving and distilling the wisdom from this Bible. That doesn't make those books wrong. I've authored books myself. Books are good only if they service you in driving you to the Word. It's pure. Peter says this spiritual milk is pure. He then says it's spiritual. He goes on to, to embellish the metaphor even further. It is a spiritual nourishment. It, is, it has power to, to seep down into the deepest part of your soul and your, your person. It, it, it changes everything about who you are. The more you, the more you feast on it and, and indulge in it, the word has power. And like newborns, oh, we must crave. How do newborns crave? Loudly. Persistently. Demandingly. My first newborn, I've already admitted this, was a a huge shock to the system. When he demanded his milk, everything it seemed stood at a standstill. Everything else fell to the background. Everything became peripheral. Sleep was sacrificed, comfort abandoned. Even our own food as mother and father was secondary to nourishing this very loud need. Peter couldn't have offered you a more vivid and compelling picture of the craving Christians must cultivate for the Word. There's no doubt some of you today are sitting here saying, well, that's all well and good and that's the ideal, but that's not really how I feel about the Word. Am I I supposed to doubt that that I'm a Christian? Am I supposed to question that I have the Holy Spirit? No, But, but this is a sign of growing maturity in Christ. This is, this is a sign of you understanding the priority that the word must play in your life. This is a discipline that you must cultivate. And therefore, isn't it, isn't it a reflection? Isn't it a reflection upon us? That Peter had this, uh, well, let me just say it. It's a graphic image of that newborn infant screaming right? Augustine has been attributed with the saying, I don't know if it's even original, but many of you have heard it many times, is if the newborn could, it would reach up and strangle its mother to demand its word. It doesn't because it can't. I don't know if Augustine did ever actually say that, but uh, uh, those that are Calvinistic since have borne the brunt of that kind of a statement. But you've been around a newborn. It's not even hard to imagine. The shriek and the holler and the demand for the word and yet for us it's a little easy to sit down pick up the remote and binge netflix or scroll online or just engage in some other more superficial time waste than cultivate this craving for the word and so there is a reflection not just upon where we're at with respect to the word but where we're at with respect to the imperative Remember the early imperatives that Peter offered. We'll go back to verse 1. Because chapter 2, of course, doesn't start at verse 2. Peter initially begins by saying, put away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. And then verse 2, Peter introduces the instrumentality that God has ordained for you to be successful. And where Christians struggle with that... Where Christians kind of get bogged down in slandering and rumor-mongering and and, and jealousies and envies and and inauthenticity. It's evidence. It's, It's a powerful metric that somewhere along the trajectory of their life, they have abandoned cultivating a craving for the Word. It's very clear because Peter has shown us that that is precisely that is precisely how we are called to love the Word and utilize the Word in our war against sin. In fact, it's, it's very curious that later on, and we don't have time this afternoon to look at this, but it's very curious later on that Peter will speak about the nature of these sins in our life. He will talk about the, 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 the excessive sin of our life makes war against our souls. I spent hours this week as I was reading that, just meditating on that phrase, those sins are making war against your soul. Why do you coddle them? Why do you empower them? Why do you give them quarter? Not you, me. I was feeling so confronted by the reality of the word and ever the more inspired to war against my sin. Hear this well, please, today. Hear this well. There is a proportionate relationship between our love and utilization of the word in our lives and our victory over these sins that Peter has listed. Proportionate relationship. I'm not saying God doesn't issue and command other means of grace. He does. God gives us a wonderfully broad arsenary against sins, not the least of which is the use of the word. So at this point, given that I've taking all that Peter has said, and I've done my best to, to, to create this, this meta imperative, if you will, a, a cultivate a craving for the word. I suspect that the natural question then is how? How does, how does one do that? Is it, just, is it just the manifest result of coming to church on a Sunday afternoon and having some guy stand up front, wave his arms around violently and just say, hey, cultivate a craving, for goodness sake. Like, is that it? That's not it. But let me give you some more applicatory, practical steps that you can and should take. Firstly, learn about the Word. Learn about the Word. The more you know about the Word, the more your curiosity will be piqued to dive into the Word. The second one, and these are in order of least to most important and significant, so I'm racing through the first two. The second one is keep company with Word lovers. What does the Scripture say? Peter, sorry, Paul, I'm going to mess up Peter and Paul all the time because we're in Peter, but Paul says bad company corrupts good character, good morals. There's there's a relationship, it's a symbiotic relationship between environment and the product of your life. And if you're spending all of your time and indulging in company that doesn't love the word, or at least urge you to love the word more, then you have to realize that there's something there to be, to be rectified. There's, there's a fix, a remedy that's immediate at hand. Now, if you can't cultivate with word lovers among the living, then may I encourage you to do it among the dead. I don't mean go to a cemetery and hang out. That's not at all what I'm saying. I'm saying read the lives of men who love the word and be inspired thereby. There's wonderful help that can be garnered in that practice but in order of least importance to most, we hasten to the third, and that is the last, which is, more than anything, feast on the Word. To cultivate a craving for the Word, feast on the Word. It, it's curious that newborns have this inbuilt, this, this inbuilt insatiable desire to be fed. It's very human, but we recognize that because we've come to the new birth, Having lived long under the old ways, the, the old fleshly way, the, the old Adamic life, as we have all experienced in some degree, we realize that we must actively engage to develop the craving. Sometimes there's nothing for it but just to do it. You know, the Purans used to say, and many of you know this, you've quoted this, you've heard this. The Purans used to say, with respect to prayer, right, what was the old Puritan adage? Pray until you pray struggling to pray struggling to generate the desire and the commitment and the discipline to pray start praying the more you indulge in prayer the more you find prayer is a a natural component of your life i want to offer in the same vein i'm no i'm no help to the purans i assure you of that but in the same vein learning from them i want to offer you read until you feast How do you cultivate a love for the Word? Just open it and start somewhere. But start now. Start today. Indulge. You'll find that the more you do it, the more the craving becomes more looming in your life and large and dominable. Indominable, I should say. The challenge is I offered three, but really... I'm only here to give you one, but every sermon needs three points, so just dis- dismiss the other two. I'm joking, of course. That was meant to be a sideswipe at Bible colleges, teaching that just for the fun of it. Other, Thank you. Two last. Very good. That's more than I expected, to be honest. That's more than I thought I was going to get. Other ways of growing in love for the Word have the latent propensity of developing love for themselves and not the Word. That's, that's part of the problem. Part of the problem is if you use other ways of loving the Word that aren't Word themselves is you can start to love the thing. This is the constant propensity of every fallen human being to love the means as an ends and fail to appreciate that every means exists for the purpose of the end. How you know your love in the word will increase? Well, you'll see increasing success at putting away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, because the word is your instrument. The Word is the instrument impregnated with the very omnipotent power of God. You cannot fail. It cannot fail. Success in putting away these wicked attitudes and behaviors is always going to be dependent upon your love and craving for the Word. This is clearly an encouragement to those What does our final verse say here in chapter 2? It says this, verse 3, If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. What a curious proviso. Have you ever seen that? And rather than just your mind think, Oh, that's that's a wonderful Old Testament allusion. Beautiful, wonderful. Have you ever stopped and thought, But why did he say it there? Why does Peter make that stress? Why is it that? What purpose does it serve, except for the fact, well, it's obviously true objectively? How is it helping? And as I was meditating and studying and praying and meditating and studying, I started to think to myself that all of this is just nothing but a scramble of ideas and verbiage if you've not tasted that the Lord is good. I begin to think about my own ministry as a pastor and a preacher of the word going on 25 years now. I've been preaching the word. I begin to think about this reality that if I stand up and I'm convincing enough to make someone think I might read more of the Bible. But if no one's tasted and seen and experienced the goodness of the Lord, it's all for naught. This is the one division that the Bible constantly reveals about humanity. And it's not ethnic. And it's not socioeconomic. And it's not geographical. This distinction is those that are in the Lord and those that are in the world. Those that are in grace and those that continually fail to appreciate the goodness and to come to Christ. In other words, this is from Peter. Another tremendous call of the gospel. Which perfectly tracks, right? What did he say at the end of chapter 1? That this gospel is the good news that was preached to you that is imperishable seed by which you have become born again. If you are not born again, your first birth will lead to ultimate and eternal death. But if you're born again, then your second birth will lead to eternal, glorious, unending life. The old riddle is said many times, maybe as a preacher it's cliche, but if you're born once, you'll die twice. If you're born twice, you'll only die once and you will live forever with God in paradise. Would you bow your head and close your eyes as we look to the Lord, asking Him to not only take His Word and feed us and nourish us and assist and help us, but if there are any here today who have yet to receive Christ in the free offer of the gospel, that they would, in this very moment, become born again and place their faith in Christ. Let's pray.